Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's show. So our oldest myths hold a secret about creativity. It's a gift from the gods themselves, they say. Or should we say the goddess? Because really, more often than not, divine inspiration is said to flow directly from a she. For example, the yoga tradition offers us Shakti, whose name is synonymous with divine feminine power. As the force that creates the entire universe, Shakti is present in every living thing, including us. She embodies every one of our cells, every aspiration, every so-called wild hair idea that seizes us. Shakti cannot help but create. It is what she does. And because she embodies us, that creative urge is present in each of us too, regardless of how we choose to honor it. Are you honoring and celebrating your creative voice? Or are you stuck in an old patriarchal story of artistic excellence? You know, the one that's tried to convince us all that we're not really good enough to have a creative voice. Well, wherever you are, I am positive that my guest today is going to leave us feeling all more artistically inspired and empowered to proudly claim our creative voices because that is what she does. Shiloh Sophia is a curator, artist, and a teacher who for the last 25 years has dedicated her life to the belief that self-expression is a basic human right. She shares this message with thousands of people around the world through her revolutionary education focused on art as a pathway to healing and transformation called intentional creativity. Shiloh and her team of more than 360 international teachers have brought the intentional creative process to many, many fields, including corporate settings, academia, healthcare systems, prisons, and more. Shiloh and her husband, Jonathan, are also the co-founders of Musea, a studio and center for intentional creativity. She's also the creator of the Red Thread Cafe, an online community with more than 9,000 members. And there's a good chance you may already know some of Shiloh's artwork through her beautiful card decks and the journals she's produced. She is joining us today from her home in California. Shiloh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for that introduction. I'm grateful to be here with all of you. Thanks for coming to join us. Mm -hmm. This should be a fun one. All right. So I love to start shows usually with just getting a little bit of grounding because it's a show about the sacred feminine, getting a little bit of grounding um, in your experience of the divine feminine. And I'll let you speak for yourself, but to me, when I view your your artwork, what I see is this real celebration of the the sacredness that's inherent in the sacred feminine or in the feminine experience itself. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious if that knowledge or that feeling of the feminine is sacred was something that was always been present for you growing up or was nurtured at all or how that really came to be in your life. Mm, wonderful inquiry. I feel like in some way she was always there. And it wasn't defined in a way that I could receive it until my mid-20s. And I come from a community of really powerful, creative women. But it's interesting because like half the camp was sort of Christian and the other half was really goddess. And I didn't really resonate 100% with either one. Mm. And so I wasn't really in the matriarchy. I wasn't in the patriarchy. And it wasn't until, you know, in my mid twenties when I really just asked the father and Jesus, where is my mother? Like what's wrong? And my mom said to me when I was a little girl, she told me that I asked if, asked if Jesus was from a broken family because where's the mommy? Wow. So she said that I had been on that question for a while. And so when I asked that question, it felt like one of the most important questions of my entire life. 
um, it didn't feel like it was one of the most important questions in my entire life. And from that moment forward, everything changed. It was one of those, I know not everyone has you know, those kind of mountaintop experiences where you ask the lightning bolt question and shazam, it's, it's happening. But when I asked that question, I felt the pure presence of the Blessed Mother arrive in my heart as if it was, you're standing right in front of me. And so from there, everything, everything changed. And so I then began, you know, it's before internet, so I can't like Google creative mother of the universe or black Madonna or, you know, there was <laughs> nothing to look at. All I had was the women's encyclopedia of myths and secrets and then some paintings by Mine Red Craighead or Susan Sedan Boulay, but I didn't really have anywhere to look. And so I went looking on my own. But from that time, my entire life path has been activated. Mm. I love that book, by the way, The Woman's Myths book of, <laughs> I'm saying it wrong, but you, you just said it by Barbara G. Walker. It's so good. I'll, I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes to that. Um, and, you know, the other thing that you said that just sparked curiosity in me, and, and I don't know, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I feel like the sacred feminine is really rising right now. And so this may not be true in the future, but I know for me, when I, I had a very similar kind of experience of, um, uh, you know, asking a, a question of where were the stories of women, the mm -hmm. spiritual experience of childbirth, mm -hmm. I, I, I couldn't find them. And I had a very aha moment <laughs> similar to yours. And then also had to go on this path of seeking for myself for a while, even though at that point I did have the internet. Um, and I wonder if there's some aspect of that journey that, that needs to begin in a solo kind of way, in a really deeply reflective kind of way. It's a point of curiosity, I guess. Yeah, and I think for those of you who are listening, just to check in with yourself and see, have you asked where is she or what happened? And see what comes up for you as you open yourself to knowing more about what may have happened. Because inside of that question is this idea that something did happen, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And um, there can also be upset at that eventually through becoming aware of the systematic removal of her from the story. And I would also just say that I feel like she's rising in our hearts, but she didn't go anywhere. We did. And so it's not like she's been gone. She's not gone anywhere. It's we went somewhere. And so each one of us who opens to the possibility of a relationship with her, in whatever form that is for you, it's you, she's rising in your heart, in your life. And then there are groups of us who are experiencing that together. So it's individual and then in some cases collective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a really good point. The other, I'm, I'm in my head, I'm kind of seeing this weaving together of the feminine and then this um, beautiful art and poetry that you create. And it really, you're, you're, um, you know, I'll let you speak for yourself about, you know, the, the purpose and the work that you do, but it feels like this beautiful celebration of artistic expression. And I'm wondering if that was something that was kind of inherent to you as a child too, if that was nurtured and encouraged growing up or how that really came to be such a focal point of your life. Yeah, it really was. Um, I had two women parents and both of them are artists. And so I have a father, a birth father too, but I was really raised by these women, Karen and Sue. My mom is Karen, birth mama, and Sue is the mom of my heart. My mom's a poet and Sue was a painter. And so I had those two together. And so I really was encouraged to be creative. And what was interesting though, is that both of them were technically talented at almost everything that they did. And then my grandmother too was technically talented in a classical sense, right? Mm -hmm. And I wasn't. I could not do anything that they did, didn't matter if they showed it to me. And so in an interesting way, I wasn't showing promise. I knew I was an artist, but that's about all. But that was actually all I needed. It's surprising sometimes that I persevered considering my art wasn't good, quote, good. And so um, when, when I really had my breakthrough in my own art was with an image of the feminine. 
And so I had been already studying and doing art and all this stuff, but nothing felt authentic to me, even with all that support, which is why I have so much compassion for people finding their image and finding their voice and having such a hard time. Because even with all that support, I didn't know how to find it. And they didn't know how to tell me, even though they were both referencing internal information, not just external references, right? So they were technical, but they weren't just honoring technique. They were honoring the voice within, but they didn't know to say that to me. Oh, honey, the image is inside. Don't make it look like that. Make it look like your own. They didn't say that. Or if they mm -hmm. did, I didn't hear it. And so when I finally made my own image, I remember this little tiny drawing I did, and it was like a one-line drawing of a seated Mama Mary holding baby Jesus, and it was a super organic, just really simple. And my mom was like, that is genius. And I was like, oh, like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, the simplicity, and she really got it. And so that was one of the first times when I was in my 20s where she was like, wow, okay, okay. And so little drawings like that, um, and my fluidity of line and content started started finally happening. But wow, what a long dry spell of being an artist all my life and not ever having that. And I think that's part of why I'm so dedicated to inviting women to that for themselves without the need for talent, because you don't have to work as hard as I did to discover it, because I can just show you in a few minutes where to find it. Mm hmm I love that. Do you think, I, I know you've worked with many, many women now too. Do you, do you think that this, um, well, and, I, and like I said in the intro, I, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your reflection on that. Do you think this creative impulse in whatever form it takes is inherent in all of us? Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Every bone in our body is a creative bone and all of us are creative all the time. The distinction is where you put that creativity and what you understand personally as creativity, which has been taught to you by someone else. And then the frequency of use and, you know, the technique that you develop for using it. There are degrees of practice, but every single thing we do is creative. We're creating. You can amplify it, which is what I do in my work of intentional creativity, which is to amplify. So, for example, say you're painting the landscape and you're like, oh, the mountain is like this and the tree is this tall compared to the mountain. And you're looking at an external reference point and you look at it and it's like, yeah, that looks pretty good. But you were just duplicating what you saw. If instead you said, what is the soul of this mountain? And what is the relationship of this mountain with this tree? If I were to listen while I move my brush or my pen, what would the mountain or the tree reveal to me about who they are? How does it make me feel to connect with this line of the mountain and this color of the mountain? What's coming up for me as I'm moving my tool across the page of the canvas? Like, what, are, what am I noticing? What is the mountain wishing to speak to me today? What is the nature of the mountain? And how could I take whatever I'm receiving and have it be a gift for me and also maybe for all beings? Maybe I'll send it to all beings. And so you go from this sort of regurgitation of an existing image of perfection, a mountain and a tree, your view, and you go into an intentional space, which then amplifies intuition, awareness, and then the image actually is shaped. So instead of just a duplication of what you're looking at, like a photograph, you're actually bringing soul to the mountain. Or the mountain is actually bringing soul to you. It <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> feels like one of those trick questions. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's both. It's yes. The answer is yes. Oh. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I love that. I, and I, I'm also thinking as you're talking about the, this way we have, uh, and I think you've kind of touched this already, this way we have of approaching creativity in that we need to know the technicality of it first, whether that's if you want to be a good painter, perhaps like the, the conventional way would be you send your kids or you send yourself and you, you learn these specific techniques. Or if you want to be a good poet, there are ways in which you construct a stanza that is sort of 
acknowledged as good. And, or if you're yeah. going to be a musician, you learn particular things. And then once you've mastered all that, then you get to go off and do your own flavor mm -hmm. of that and your own variation of that. And I wonder how you would, you would respond to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, certain mediums. So depending on the, it's very medium dependent. So um, if you're talking about painting, dancing, drawing, singing, you don't need talent to get a result. If you're talking about jewelry making, composing a song on the guitar, or doing a, you know, a sonnet compared to creative flow, it's totally diff different, right? Because the results are totally different. You literally can't make it a beautiful necklace if you don't know how to make a necklace and you're working in metal, you know? <laughs> you can't use the guitar. You just will not make a song. So we're talking about the kinds of arts that can be distinct from the talent-based realm. Now, with these talent-based arts, we don't really address those in intentional creativity. We know that some people do those. That isn't our focus. Our focus is the arts that don't need talent to begin them, to get you excited and motivated. They say that the foundation of, of painting is drawing, and my teacher said that too. And I really believe that the foundation of painting is, is beginning, <laughs> is layering, and then you're like, wow, I really want to know how to do a hand or an eye, then you can go and learn that from the place of inspiration. And so I really am an advocate of intuitive emergent exploration first, and then technique second. And I know many would disagree with me on that. And I just really don't care. I'm dealing with a certain kind of, of approach, which has a much greater chance of keeping retention. Um, because if someone starts with talent and they basically don't show an affinity, then they're going to stop or they're going to feel criticized and they actually also don't feel the joy. And so if we can create an, a context or opportunity in which you get immediate pleasure an immediate sensation an immediate sense of, Ooh, show me more. I'll figure out how to do it later. Uh, if I need more technique, I'll get that later. Then it's like a whole other thing. So, I think one of the challenges when children are given these creation tools and they don't need to know how to draw the first time you give them the pen or the crayon. And at a certain point, uh, adults arbitrarily make some decision about how a child should be developing and they're told they're either talented or should move on. And when the crayons are removed and then maybe they get a nice set of pens, if you don't get a nice set of pens, the pens aren't going to actually do it for you. Crayons are pretty satisfying in comparison to bad pens. So if you have nice pens, then you've got, maybe you've got a journal instead of a coloring book. You, then you should go from your journal and your nice pens to a paint and a canvas. It's a natural evolution that I think all children should be given progressive creative tools, age appropriate. And it's shocking to me that we remove the tools from the child with no explanation as to why those tools are being removed and then don't replace them with anything else. It's pure devastation to the mind of the child. They, that is a moment of, of absolute trauma that could be prevented. And hardly anyone really knows how to talk about it, except to say that if you ask anyone who remembers being creative, if they remember the moment when they put the crayons down, I've, every single person I've ever talked to does remember that moment. So it's a significant moment. Either they put the crayon down or someone took them away. That's a significant moment in the, in the development of the child. And then they become both internalized and externalized, but mostly it's a fragmentation occurs in the psyche when you're not using your imagination in the same way. And now you start measuring your imagination against reality, which you will fail because it doesn't work that way. So we're really setting ourselves up for failure. It's really devastating. <laughs> it's like, and this, you know, we can equate this right back to the feminine of just like removing the, the value of the literal creation of a child. Like, you know, there are every day over a hundred women's lives are taken by people who know them and women are not valued as the creators. And it's the same with art. We don't value the creation of art 
as part of soul development. It's either talent or it's not. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, really scary. Yeah, it really is. And I, I was just thinking too that, you know, so I've got a, a, a little girl that's going into third grade and then a kindergartner and just watching the progression of school so far, I haven't gotten any farther than that, but it seems that as the education goes on, uh, art is just, uh, it's kind of just for fun, you know, and then the more serious you get into academics and you've got, you've got to learn all the other subjects that there's just, it's just a gradual erosion. It just slides away. It's important in kindergarten, you know, but, but that's because they can't write yet. They don't have their letters yet. So they're working on their letters and they're also doing their art. And then it's maybe it's important a little bit in first grade, but you know, as we go on, it just kind of falls by the wayside. Yeah. Or maybe it's intentionally removed. Yeah. Yeah. STEM instead of STEAM. Oh gosh. That, yes, I, I feel that one very deeply. But what I hadn't really thought about until you just mentioned it is just this idea that there can be a progression of um, creativity in that way, that it can be just as thoughtful as the way in which you teach a child phonics, which is going to build to reading, which is going to build to that. And it doesn't have to be about um, technical ability, but just as pure like love and joy of that that ability to create itself. Like I'm just thinking what a beautiful place or how, how wonderful that would be if our schools embraced that a little bit more. Yes. Yeah. I also want to ask you about this idea of, uh, and here I'm going to be speaking specifically about visual art mm-hmm. as something that is inherently feminine. And I, I hesitate in using the word fit. I just, I want to be clear that I'm not speaking about like literally gendered, the, the gendered ideas that we have of male and female, but I kind of referenced this in the intro of this idea of creation belonging to the feminine itself. But there's also, I've read this idea that the visual specifically because it is holistic in nature um, is a language that aligns with the with the feminine and with it with our imagining of the divine feminine i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that you know i have um i was actually really raised to not see things as masculine or feminine i was actually warned against it (laughs) Mm. um and probably because one of my moms was super butch right so we're going to use the saw we're going to chop down the rotten tree and we're going to make firewood and then we're going to build a fire and then we're going to kill the chicken and we're going to roast the chicken. We're going to do everything. And so there's, so the, the most classic uh, male, female dividing of responsibilities and qualities and characteristics. I didn't have that. And then um, also, so in terms of like what's feminine, what's masculine, I don't assign any sort of traits or qualities like a lot of popular goddess culture does today. I also don't assign her as always a consort of the masculine or a counterpart, or we all have a masculine and feminine side. Like I don't buy into any of that. I don't buy into, you know, mother earth, father sky and do any of that stuff because I think it's actually really um, challenging to get out of it once you've gotten into it the way that our bodies are designed and the field of our bodies that's connected with that design, the way our chromosomes are relative to the male chromosome, it's different. There's a different design here and that different design leads to different choices for an idea for preservation of the race, not just the population of the race, you know, regenerative qualities. Um, the, the wise woman who sees everything wrong and is just constantly pointing it out and the masculine who's like, we don't want to know that, right? So there, there are these ways that the behaviors play out. And so women do have this tendency to be the pointing things out a lot, which is one of the reasons why we've been silenced by men and women, by many different cultures. And so I feel like, you know, this might, it's just a little bit of an alternative view of um, how we really look at gender and expanding it. And there's that book called The Al- Goddess in the Alphabet by Leonard Schlein. Yeah. And my mom, who was 
the painter and more patriarchal, so to speak, loved the book. And then Sue, who's the poet and more matriarchal, hated it. And I remember these conversations about like to not assign the origin of language to the advent of the patriarchy as if blah, blah, whatever. And so it's an old topic. It's an old topic in our household to be really mindful of ascribing qualities, but definitely looking at genetic DNA style uh, propensities as the markers, not emotion, beliefs, patterns, and things that can be changed. So, and I'm sure that might not be the answer you're looking for, but. <laughs> it's a great answer. I, um, you know, I think in my own explore, exploration of the sacred feminine, mm -hmm. like she's intentionally pulls the rug out for me as often as she can, <laughs> which is kind of, it's kind of great actually, because anything yeah. that I'm like, aha, I yeah. have figured it out. This is absolute and it is unchanging. <laughs> She'll be like, but wait a minute. What about this? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. So I, I actually really appreciate that. And, um, I think, and, and I do know that book, and I do remember thinking like, ah, oh, well, this, this, this makes a lot of logical sense to me, the alphabet versus the goddess. This has actually come up on other shows as well. Um, the, the idea of us being more right-brained and, you know, in, when, at a time when um, the, the goddess was more prevalent. However, um, I can see what you're saying, and I can also see it being limiting, um, and it's one person's perspective. Yeah. And then that perspective becomes paradigm, you know, and I love his work though. I mean, his work on art and physics, like I study his work. And so I really, I really love it. And I just, I'm like, that would be different if it was written by a woman, you know? And so I feel like, I mean, there's this other thing that's just rising up right now is how when we look at cultures, whether that's, you know, Shiva and Shakti or Jesus and Mary or father, sky, you know, whatever. It's, it's so interesting to look at them and to go back to who were the first people who said stuff like that. And they're men. And then you also look at the goddess traditions. Um, maybe goddess traditions, probably like the past 20,000 years worth. If you see a woman in a position that's secondary, it's probably written by a man. If you see an elevation of masculine over feminine or too harsh of a divide of roles, probably not written by a woman. So we do have these propensities to the way that we tell story. And I question all of them. And I'm just like to Persephone, you know, no, no more making a deal with the under underworld. It's over. No more fucking deals. It's over. No cleaning up after it anymore. No go rescue the bad man. Like, no, it's over. We're not making any more deals. And we're not compromising. And to rescue the feminine psyche out of the classifications and the consortification of her and her roles and just, we got to get through this, you all. Like, we have got to look at how these are impacting us, including the assignment of the chakra system, the way the West has interpreted it. No, like, come on, go deeper. Who said it? Are, are you accepting that? Does that color actually go there? What are you believing? What have you taken on? What do you think about her? What do you think about him? How, what, what has gone on here? And really look at the patterns and systems and traditions that we've taken on in our absolute desperation for the sacred and for the, what we define as the feminine and then seeing, is there a man behind that? Mm. And if that society at the time of that making of that system did not treat women as equal, which they didn't likely, then I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I'm not buying in to any of it. And so that leaves me with, you know, a pretty broad palette of potential and a capacity to have relationships with the qualities of the mothers that is not defined by a story primarily told by the victors. Yeah. And it, what you're saying, I think is both really liberating and also, Oh, what's the word that I'm looking for? I'm, I'm sensing like, um, 
the earth moving underneath my feet. Like, see, you know, there's a, I feel like in my own journey in finding the sacred feminine in my life has been this, I think I said, it's like having the rug pulled out from under me over and over again and realizing that all of these things that feel fixed in a way are not, they are a product Mm -hmm. of the way uh, we have constructed culture and that culture has been constructed and told back to us uh, usually by men. And Mm -hmm. so what is real, you know, it can feel exciting, but it's also feels a little Mm -hmm. disconcerting. I think that's the word. There's very little that's, that could be called real or true with a capital T, which then brings us into the level of myth and mystery where there's full reign to explore what works for us. And also what phase are you in? Like when people are just getting started looking at her, then you go and you look at the historical context and you don't ever stop looking at the historical context. It just comes a time where you were like, yeah, I don't know any woman who would make that bargain. (laughs) Like what's going on there or whatever it is. Right. And not from a disrespect, but yeah, I'm, I'm a little suspicious. And I would just say, you know, when you pull that, when you get that rug pulled out from under your feet and you hang it on the wall, you're going to see a different image than the one we've been trampling on. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess this, in my mind, brings me around again to the work that you do is now I'm, I'm feeling like, well, okay, so you pull the rug out from under you and what is left I, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's been that inward turning over and over again. Like, what do I hear in my soul? What is my intuition telling me? Um, What do I feel like I know in my bones that perhaps my ancestors knew that they're still whispering in some way? Um, And cultivating that feels like a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what, and what access to, at what time did the ancestors have to, to what part of the material, you know, mm-hmm. because that's, that's the other piece is just, we haven't had a lot to work with for a long time. I mean, if you think of patriarchy as five to 8,000 years, and it's like, it's been a while, it's like short, but long, you know, mm-hmm. um, where we haven't really had access to the fullness of the feminine. And then a lot of the stories that we've had um, over the past five to 8,000 years, not so good. We're just starting to reveal some of the older stories and draw some conclusions about what we understand about the artifacts and the images of the feminine that are found. And then really looking at who were those people, like if there's corn in the image, what was their relationship to corn? What was their relationship to water and geography? Like really using the, the images as part of the legend to discover what it is and then not making yourself stick to it like a truth, really letting it remain in the domain of myth that those sculptures are not an exact replica of a woman. Those are interpretive, right? And so can we have a true with a capital T relationship with the feminine divine without knowing her name, without attaching to a story or a frequency? How intimate can we get? if we don't know her name and yet we know thousands of her names, we're not assigning a particular quality or frequency or color palette or geography. Like, can you get really intimate when it's that big? Mm-hmm. That's part of the, part of the work. And then, and then being willing to get, look at the different mothers um, as part of the evolution of the framework of her. So I'm not saying to throw all of those out. I am saying to look at them and be cautious of the time frame and who's telling the story. And I just want to make a point. I love men and I love my husband. And, you know, so none of this is, I'm not really talking about specific men. I'm talking about uh, paradigmatic frameworks that where Ill- illusions and invented myths end up becoming what is understood as reality. And that is often more often than not enforced by not just men, but like the victors, the conquesters, the rulers, the the dictators, the stories are told by those who were lit, who remained. Mm -hmm. And then they changed it in order to create um, the story that benefited whoever they were the most. Can't blame them too much. 
And at the same time, I'm not buying it. Mm-hmm. It's not relevant for me now. Yeah, my last podcast guest, we we talked about this idea of patriarchal systems in general just being equally as damaging to men as they oh, are okay. to women. Yeah. Devastating. Absolutely devastating. Only they don't know what hit them and we do. <laughs> right. It's even worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> try to point out the thing and they're like, what thing? And we're like, no, this thing. What? What is it? <laughs> A whole yes. routine that I do um, where there's patriarchy and misogyny and they went to high school together and they end up getting married and they just mutually reinforce each other's paradigm. But when you ask them what it is, they don't know because <laughs> they can't see it. <laughs> wow. I love that. It's funny because I started writing letters to Pat. I'm like, dear Pat, because I'm breaking up. I broke up with Pat recently, like once and for all. I finally just, I broke up with him on Facebook. And um, it's so funny because people in my community started writing, Dear Pat, now it's my turn. And there was just something about giving it the name that just somehow like the breakup just, it made it personal. And and it was interesting how I didn't feel like being violent or rageful or I can't believe you did this. Why are you doing that? It's like, you know, the way we've been working together for a long time isn't working for me anymore. I know our families have been really connected and there's issues of property for us to resolve and how things have been going. And maybe you're not even aware. I think I've tried to tell you this isn't working. Like the garden isn't doing well when you act like that. I just can't do it anymore. And, you know, I'm so sorry. This is probably going to hurt and it's going to take you a long time to understand what I'm even talking about, but you have to open your ears. And I hope that this breakup will wake you up and um, I'm not, I'm not mad at you. I don't hate you. I just, this isn't working for me or anyone anymore, you know, and just somehow within yourself doing the energetic work and then making art around it to, to make it real. I was like, yeah, I actually did that already. I broke up with Pat. And so now I don't live with Pat anymore. I left the building and now I can look back at Pat and the memory and be like, Whoa, that's happening over there. But that actually isn't happening in my space where my soul lives. And so then I have perspective. I also don't want to spend all my time fighting it because um, it isn't going to resolve that way anyway. Mm -hmm. I love that. That feels very rich. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I was just thinking the other night, I I was thinking like, oh, my inner patriarch is telling me something, you know, like, I don't know, whatever, whatever, whatever he had to say. Never thought about giving him a name. (laughs) Uh, I love it. I so I want to bring it back to I, I'm thinking of this this big slippery nature of uh, I, I I'm not going to say it exactly how you said it but you talked about truth with a capital T and how we can really know her when we, she has we don't know her name and yet thousands of people have given her names and and I guess it, it relates to what you just said too about you know breaking up with patriarchy is the the role and the function of art in that and how that can facilitate that. And I, I know you've said elsewhere that, and you can tell me if this still feels accurate, that the three focus areas of your work are painting, poetry, and intentional community. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm thinking of all of those as artistic expressions in some way and, and how your work in those areas helps you do those things that, that you were just speaking to. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, painting poetry are, are my medium and I bring that medium through my teachings to my community, which is uh, and the intentional creativity movement. We think of ourselves as one of the most, if not the most largest, well-established focused art movements in the world and specifically regarding women. There's never been on document an art movement that worked this way. I mean, impressionism, what are you talking like eight guys in (laughs) Europe, you know, like what is the takes to define a movement? And like the biggest movements is said to be plain air, but that's not really an organized philosophy. That's just an approach to painting or you could think of burning man, but that's, you know, not necessarily organized in the same way, but in terms of how movements are defined where there's qualities to the images and the approach and the story and the timing, we have that. And so 
when you bring it back to art and the feminine, I mean, without the images of the feminine, we still wouldn't know that there hasn't always been patriarchy. It is only the images and then, you know, the handful of women who are clairvoyant who could actually see it or remember it, but they would have been thought of as crazy, you know, before the advent of the archeological discoveries of like the, you know, mid sixties up until now, unless you are somewhere in the world where there happened to be those images in the museum. And then those were potentially mislabeled as well. And so it's really art, the artifacts, which have pointed to the reality of, you know, 50,000 years of mothers. And so I can't even imagine where we'd be, you know, back to your thought about the image of the feminine and the image, like she has multiplied herself. You cannot get rid of her. Tens of thousands of images. And then you add the Guadalupe images and the Black Madonna images on top of it mass production or you search on the internet and it's like billions of responses. Like she's literally made it impossible to deny her existence. And there are almost no images of the masculine like that. I mean, she's way <laughs> gone beyond in terms of mass production of herself over and over and over and over. Like when I was at the um, Basilica in Mexico seeing the, the Virgin de Guadalupe and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is so genius. You've, you've financed through your image, this entire movement. Like she gave her image to her people and now they can make a living sharing her story and her image. I'm like, Oh wow, that is so cool. You know, that is so amazing. And so in my community, we make her for ourselves. We make the feminine image for ourselves. And I say to my students, if someone were to find your painting, in 500 years, what story would they tell about who you were and who your people were? And what if um, we mark the back of our paintings with a symbol, a code, a symbol? What if in 500 years, there are 10,000 images that are marked with that same code all around the world? Can't deny it. Unless they destroy every single one, which would be almost impossible, unless the entire earth just decides to compost us, which is also possible. <laughs> It'll be more like a hundred thousand years, but we'll see. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. I love that idea of the record, you know? Yeah. We are now making the record, the record, which cannot be burned like the library of Alexandria. We're the new record keepers. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It is. I know in, in your work too, you, I'd love to hear you talk about what intentional creativity is, what that means to you, what that process looks like. And I guess, you know, how that weaves back into what we're, we're talking about that, that uniquely sort of feminine lens or, or view that people are, are getting through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, intentional creativity is, belongs to all beings. It's just more, more women practice it than men because I'm a woman, but it belongs to all beings or no beings. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's the same as like saying, Hey, everything's made of energy. Well, every time we create, we use intention. It's like obvious. And what we do is we amplify the obvious by choosing to consciously bring that intention into the process. And as you're doing that, there's a host of miraculous <laughs> things happening when you, when you begin to you know, listen to the essence of the mountain instead of duplicate what you perceive as the mountain. And part of what happens is you're projecting an internal reality to an external locus. So you now behold and connect with the externalized locus of something that was once inside is now outside. And so your body, your hands, any part of you that's interacting with the object is perceiving the sensory packet of the thing that gets created. Whatever it's getting created is being infused with intention, which is amplifying the literal frequency of the object. And this is a little more technical, but 
And so what that means, it like Einstein says, the, the field is the sole governing agency of the particle. And so why am I just focusing on particle? Why don't I focus on the field? And intention actually brings awareness of the field. So I've got the intention of the field, and then I've got the creation of my physical, the soma. So now I've got field and body engaged together with awareness. Now I'm watching myself creating, and I'm perceiving information, and I'm getting insight. My imagination is expanding, and the whole field in which whatever's getting created is getting created is being amplified by my conscious awareness of it happening in real time. So all of this is happening energetically, and physically and the experience is totally different than if you're duplicating something in nature or you're pulling an image from inside and not thinking about what it means or what it might have for you so and and why it's different is because of of how it makes your brain and field operate and so you could just say that i am mindful about my making that's intentional creativity all indigenous cultures practiced intentional creativity, even if they didn't call it that. Um, they wove the pattern into the rug, which became the wall hanging that you just got pulled out from under you. The codes are in there. Someone put that in by intention. And so it's, it's in there. It's all woven in there. Um, the totem poles, uh, the baskets, the cave paintings, like every single thing that the ancestors made to tell story and depict image uh, carries the charge of those those ancestors, and it's all intentional. They're not just doing it. Hey, I think I'm going to print my hands all over this thing, and I'm going to do 13 red hands, and I'm going to da da Or the skull cape. It's like the star configuration of that time is inherent in the image, you know. So it's like they were wanting to communicate story, and just because they didn't write the language down doesn't mean they didn't have it in their head. They had the language; they just didn't have technical writing perhaps, but you know, cuneiform is one of the earliest forms of writing. So it's intention is what changes, what moves from the non-local field to the local. It's what changes what's happening, which then changes you. It's pretty much like everything there is. And anything that we make that we don't make with intention, like with a thought for regenerative nature or a thought that it doesn't extract from nature too much like the making of plastics or something right that would be an example of intentional but not with a regenerative nature so even bad things are intentional creativity it's just that in our case we're requesting that we look at what is the impact that's one of the facets of intentional creativity is what impact will this have and is there anything that's hurting or being taken away by my use of this tool, this product, this image. So really considering a more holistic version. And then in theory, as humans, we wouldn't make things that break. We wouldn't make things that extract. We wouldn't let toxicity get created because we would know it would break and make it not work. And I just call that the broken math. And the broken math is still intentional, but it isn't intentional with love it's actually the intention of destruction so how do we change how everything that we do in our life and how do we raise our children and work with our elders in such a way that making the bed becomes a ritual instead of a chore it's like it's so subtle all the changes like okay we're gonna you know we're gonna buy you this pillow that you love so much and when you make your bed you're making your bed so that when you come back, you're going to have sweet dreams. And when you put this pillow on, it's like, this is the moment where that sets the whole thing in place. It's like a little altar for sleeping and resting. Like when you talk to a child about things like that, um, they totally understand. They totally understand. They don't understand do this because I said, or do, you know, like it's the whole approach to love and relationships when it's created with intention is so different. It's subtle, but it's everything. And I think it's why we fall out of love with each other because we're not intentional enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you're talking about this, I'm noticing a story that's played a lot for me. Uh, and that is that 
claiming that level of intention is, um, it's really hard. Like I, I imagine, um, going way back, you know, my, my way back ancestral people, I, I, I actually really do feel deeply that they, they did know how to do this because they, they didn't see themselves as separate from the rest of the world. They hadn't bought into that storyline, which is so prevalent here. And um, there are definitely times when I feel like it's sort of like you open up this the can of worms, I guess is the metaphor, but then you start to realize how almost everything in our culture is designed to get you to do the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. And, and so I wonder, and I'm just kind of reflecting here. So I'd, I'd love to just hear your thoughts back on that. Is that, do you feel like there's in, as you start to claim this process of intentional creativity, uh, does it feel challenging in some ways? Because it does, when you look around, I feel like there are a lot of forces out there. I'm doing air quotes here, but out there, like kind of pushing against that. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually easier. Hmm. It makes life flow. I mean, in the beginning, it may be hard because if you're going to teach your child to make a bed that way, you have to go slow. You have to stop. You have to sit. You can't rush through intention. And my teacher would say, you know, paint like you have all the time in the world. What have you got to do? There's nothing else. There's just this painting. When you start treating everything that way, it's everything changes. Uh, time goes, goes faster and slower. Flow state is induced. The end result is more beautiful. Resistance goes away. So if you're being told, like my mom, instead of giving me chores, although I, I did have part of my life where I did tons of chores, but she would say, well, I'll do these, these chores if you'll go and memorize this poem. So she, value, she would give me creativity instead of the other thing. And then when I was doing chores with my other mother, it was like, this is good work. Don't shy away from good work. You need your muscles to be strong. Let me show you how this works. You need to be able to do this for yourself. So you're not just doing it because that's what makes it hard is doing it because. But when you bring love and beauty to it, there's buoyancy and it carries you. You lose track of time. Like people in our community, for example, experience chronic pain. Uh, we've been doing some experimenting with pain and healing. And, you know, over 85% report feeling times of painlessness when they're painting. So creativity takes you beyond. And how can you bring that level of awareness to the mundane and in addition to the sacred, not just the painting and the altar, but really like, really like everything. And I think it goes faster. And honestly, from a household perspective, <laughs> making your home into a ritual space, it also um, stays more organized because it has an honored place to be, to be what it is. And we, when we are intentional about our, our clothing, our altars, our gardens, our every place that we can bring this level of awareness, we get access. And I think life recognizes that vibrationally and offers us other opportunities that aren't given when we're not respecting what there is. And so we say we're going to respect the mountain and the rock and the sky and the bird, but we're not going to respect this computer or this car or this sippy cup or whatever it is. What if everything has value? What if we only bring in the things that, that have value? We try. And what if we honor each thing as if it has life? How will that change what we buy, how we interact? It changes everything. And I'm not saying like <laughs> that we can do this for everything and that I'm just totally immaculate at it or anything, but just that there's an awareness about it, about the usage and about how it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is making me think of, uh, you know, back when this pandemic started, there was a lot of reflection about the slowdown and um, the opportunity to experience life in this more 
I was going to say meditative, but that's not the word, but I think more intentional, like this more intentional way, like you've been speaking to. And I do want to acknowledge that. I think that's, that's a, that's a storyline of privilege. You know, that's true for some people and certainly not true for a lot of other people, but um, that's bringing me around to this thought about this particular moment in time. And so I would love to hear your thoughts on this idea of intentional creativity and how that might be particularly beneficial for us as we continue to navigate just, you know, times that none of us have really ever experienced before in this lifetime, at least. Mm -hmm. I think the key to that is, is the, the quality of life. And like you said, it may not be available to all beings. So just say for those who have an opportunity to, who feel they have an opportunity to curate some part of their quality than do, you know, to, and it's those who can. And I remember um, my mom and I often lived in some pretty bad neighborhoods and, but my mom would make the home beautiful inside because she was a, a seamstress and a carpenter. So she would build things and sew things. And so I always felt like, even though we didn't have very much, my mom made beauty. And you could say that's a function of, of privilege, even knowing that there was beauty. But I know lots of people who had way more than we did and who didn't make me make beauty. So I would say anyone who has the chance or who, who desires the chance to curate their space to reorganize your home and your studio and your closet and your computer, like just to go about the thing as if it matters. And when you treat matter as if it matters, energy starts to move. And so during this time to, you know, people have been saying, discovering what really matters, you know, your family, your politics, what you care about, the earth. And that's all important, obviously. But I would point you to what truly is within your own soul that matters to you. And when you are developing that area, within your own soul, that's, that's the place that begins to curate everything else. And a lot of us are so busy making and helping others and finding value in helping others and even ourselves. We're not really curating soul space. And so you could say that's, that's a privilege too, right? To even have the question, Ooh, I could have a part of curating this. But so those who are listening who feels like you feel like you can, how can you start to bring this level of awareness to everything in your home and life and mind having a life in, in and of itself? How can you honor it and slow down enough to, to hear soul's voice speaking through you to you? Without that, nothing makes sense anyway. Without that, the intentions that we make don't hold the power that they could. When you're speaking and creating and loving from soul, then you're, you're in it, you're on it. And then the capacity to navigate what's happening is not based on what's happening externally. It's based on what's happening internally, which is the one thing you have some say over. We often start with the strangest vantage point, like what's happening in the world <laughs> before we start with what's happening in my world. And I don't mean that from a narcissistic perspective, but like, start with me, right? Start with me, start with my soul space and ask from there and let that direct me toward how I may tend my role in the world. And I know there are some who disagree with that right now, but that's still my stand. Cultivate mm -hmm. your inner relationship in order to know how to cultivate the other relationships because you just won't care enough you know, part of I'm working in a whole bunch of, of work with racial and gender justice. And the biggest thing I find is that good people, but they just don't care enough to be inconvenienced to do the work. And it's not because they're bad. I mean, they just, they want to know what's in it for them and blah, blah, blah. She would never even ask that question if you're, were listening from soul. It's not about good or bad person. Like your soul wants justice for all. I mean, gosh, your soul wants gender equality for all. Like it's not a reaction to the status quo. It's like, wow, of course I want that. 
But if you don't have access to that place within you that wants justice for all, then you're working with these externalized forces and presences and reacting and then using your energy to fight before you've even found the place within you that wants the wrongs to be righted. And when you want that for all beings authentically, then you can find the path and the language and how to work with it. But you first have to know it for you. And if you don't know it for you, it's going to be hard to stick with the road. I mean, like gender equality, it's probably not going to happen in our lifetime. So it's a long road, but let's get going. You know, we're working on it. I feel like there's progress being made, but each one of us needs to be committed to that progress. And your soul wants to be because it's right, because it's good, because it feels like it's coming from the truest place within you you can find, not just because you should or it's politically correct or this is how we're saying it now. It really comes, the movement of love comes from within. But if you're not within, you're not going to feel that love moving. And that love moving has momentum. And how we do that in our community is through creating. Mm. Really beautiful. So we're almost out of time. And since we're speaking about, you know, what comes from your soul and your own creations, I, I wanted to give you the opportunity if you, if you feel like taking it to, as a poet, I know you write. And if, you, if there's anything that you'd like to share with us as a, as a kind of closing peace for us. Okay. Thank you so much for the invitation and for your reflections. And I just want to share with all of you listening, you know, I'm not sharing what I'm sharing to create agreement, right? I'm just another voice out here um, looking for my own way of working. And then the things that do work, I try to share, but you have to find your own way. It's your, you know, you've got to find your way. And then if we're blessed, we find others who have similar enough ways that we're not fighting each other and then can hang out and explore our real originality and diversity and really not seek to homogenize through agreement, but actually to really celebrate the distinctions without needing to cancel out anybody else's view. So this is a poem called Cantos of Reclamation, and it was created in response to a painting. So when I create a painting, I will listen to the voice of the painting or pull features of the painting and then write about it. So this is called Cantos of Reclamation. She is the quickening standing at the threshold of now. She doesn't perform alchemy. She is the embodied alchemical process. She doesn't need to create legacy by design. She is the legacy as it reveals itself. She certainly isn't waiting to be discovered. The lady has already discovered herself. She is not persuaded by readings of the almost future that hold prophecies of prescribed delivery or doom. She carries the codes of the tree of life in her blood. She prays to be ready to receive the fullness of the teachings. She need not constantly seek to heal what is wounded. She carries holy wholeness in her unbroken soul. With supple shimmer, she slips out of stories worn old, gliding from hidden worlds into the joy of pure presence. She is woven of the matter of mysterious darkness, a daughter of wisdom whose radiance never ceases. She is at the intersection where light enters the prism, surrendering a necessary struggle, heralding an age of beauty. Her true lover is not her opposite, nor her reflection. What they are, who they are, is still being informed. She is one of the many messengers of the ancient future, first remembering and then creating with intention. She is a shelter for the sacred, a call to action for the lost, the revealing of an archetype from the celestial eclipse. Her creativity marks out the atlas of possibility, dissolving duality, tending to reclamation and refuge. Where paths meet, she takes her stand, a Vesica Pisces view, weaving technology and biology, a stardust methodology. She knows from whence the gifts come, from the creator. She chooses to follow a narrow path 
the way. The lineage she carries is carried by all people, yet often lays hidden under suppression of consciousness. She calls a council to gather mystics, poets, painters, cantors, scientists, dancers, wisdom keepers, and Christos seekers. As an, as an initiation, they reclaim language, image, code, seed, sound. A new mythos is revealed, already carried in the codex of the soul. Together they explore the intersections that have divided us, offering a view of generosity, prosperity, and justice. She shrugs off continual apology for self and projections from others. With acceptance and forgiveness for self and others, she emerges. She steps out of systems of any kind that do not support life, simultaneously stepping into structures of divine design. She is the scribe and the curator of her own becoming, guided by her call to the ministry of refuge and reclamation. She accepts with gravity her responsibility to the great unfolding. Nurturing herself, she discovers the nurturing for those she serves. Her unreasonable prayer is a song for the wellness of all, an offering of love, comfort, and an invitation to the quickening. She hopes that this reading may be a blessing for you, as it has been for her in the writing, in the revelation. The writing of one's own cantos of reclamation can be a ritual towards the awakening. Join me at the Council of the Sacred. We will all be there waiting for you and ready to dance. Wow. That feels like an absolutely perfect way <laughs> to end with such a beautiful invitation to. <laughs> mm, thank you so much for that. Yeah. And thank you for being here today, Shiloh. This has been really, really special. It's a beautiful conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you all of you for tuning in and just hold this the gigantic space of possibility for you to deepen into that more intimate relationship with, with her. Uh, willing to do the, the work of being intentional about what that looks like and be risky, be willing to risk letting go of what you thought you knew and old patterns that may not have been designed with women in mind. Yeah. You get to make your own patterns. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was actually thinking, you know, I've been doing this podcast since February, I guess now, and um, feels like every guest is this beautiful tapestry that's being created. Everyone is different. Everyone comes to this conversation with a uh, different perspective and something beautiful. And um, so it's like a weaving, a weaving of something, something new and old at the same time and really wonderful. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you for being here. And thanks to all of you guys for listening. And hey, as always, if you like this show, you can subscribe. You can give it a five-star review on iTunes. You can tell your friends about it. You can do all three of those things if you really want. And until next time, we'll talk to you again soon. Home to Her is hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the sacred feminine. And you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at Home to Her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here soon.